Welcome to episode number 54 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about dust explosion and combustion test methods. To do that, we have back on the show, Dr. Ashok Dasadar. Ashok, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me on again. So those of you that have been listening to the last couple episodes, you'll know we had Ashok on episode 50, just four episodes ago, talking about dust explosion hazards in the pharmaceutical industries. We've had him on before, talking about dust hazard analysis. In this episode, we're going to delve further into dust explosion test methods and dust combustion test methods. Ashok is Vice President of Dust Inflammability Testing and Consulting Services with Fausky Associates out of Chicago, Illinois. He's also a fellow engineer with Westinghouse Electric Company and a, a member on the technical committees of, of several of the NFPA boards. This specific episode, we're talking about the book Methods and Chemical Process Safety, Volume 3 on Dust Explosions. In the previous episode, episode 53, we talked about an overview of this book with Dr. Paul Amiot. It was edited by Dr. Amiot and Dr. Faisal Khan. And then we're going to go through in the next couple of episodes and just talk to some of the book authors about their chapters. So Dr. Dasadar, so Ashok wrote a chapter on test methods for combustible dust, what the different stages are uh, of the different type of testing. And we're going to go through that in this episode. We're going to talk about the stages, what is the dust deflagration testing process look like, and then we'll probably focus quite a bit of time on the combustibility testing because this is something we haven't talked about on the podcast before. So Ashok, with that in mind, I guess uh, I'm looking at in the in the book itself, Figure one, which has kind of the four stages to getting your dust tested. What are those different stages for the, the listener? Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, the, the, the first stage, and I think the most important stage of the whole process, uh, is going to be the uh, material identification. Oh, I guess the first two stages. The first stage is the material identification where, you know, what do you actually have that's a dust? And it's very easy if you have uh, a, a known input. Let's say you bought polyethylene powder to put into your process, you know, therefore, you know, have, you have polyethylene, uh, or if you have a key ingredient that's going into your, uh, manufacturing of a pharmaceutical product, you know, that what you've bought. So material identification is easy at that point. Uh, it becomes harder though, if it's a fugitive material or a waste material that's coming off of a process. Let's say if you're doing some rework on a painted part at a, at a job shop and, and you're, you're, you're bead blasting a piece of steel to knock off the paint now you're going to have a bit of that steel. You're going to have a little bit from the bead blast. You're going to have a little bit of uh, underlying metal from the actual part that you were, were, were bead blasting. And you're going to have the oils that are used for corrosion inhibiting and, and resins and paint. So the material identification is, is an important first stage. And the second stage is then the, the sample identification and, and, and characterization. So going back to the bead blasting example, um, identifying the sample, pulling it from, let's say, if you're if it's going into a cyclone, and then into a bag house, you know they might be different materials. They might be different materials in the cyclone versus the bag house. So you knowing dust, you know th those are going to be behaving differently in a combustion sense. Maybe there's more of the metal powder in the cyclone and more of the the resin and and paint being taken off in the bag house, for example. So you'd want to characterize those two, like which is what, is there more metal here? Is there less metal here? Uh, what's the particle size distribution? Uh, what is the particle morphology? Because that also comes into play. Uh, what is the moisture content, for example? Are there volatiles associated with it? That's stage two. And then stage three is where things sort of bifurcate. The stage 3A that I've entitled in the figure is called 
measuring the reactivity of the dust cloud. And this is where you have the go-no-go no go explosibility screening test that uh, you can either use ASTM E1226 and Section 13 to do the go-no-go no go screening test, or you can just do an abridged E1515, which is the MEC test. You can just do an abridged version of the MEC test to see whether your material explodes or not. But that's looking at a cloud, uh, a suspended dust cloud. But also in stage three, we have stage 3B, when we're actually looking at the reactivity of a pile or layer of material. In which case, you're looking at two possible tests you can do. You can do a burning behavior test, which was originated in the, in the VDI standard. I think it's uh, 2263, where they talk about uh, a burning behavior. They classify it into three stages, or sorry, six classifications, class one, class two, class three, followed by, you know, those are, those are combustion but non-propagating classes. And then uh, you have class four, class five, class six, which are propagating combustion classes. The alternative is to do a burn, burn rate screening test where you just have a slightly larger pile of powder, but you ignite it in a very similar way and you watch to see whether the material propagates or not. And I'd say that this stage three is the most critical stage for determining if the hazard exists or not. This is a good part where if you want to do a DHA facility and you have a lot of dust that you need to look at, maybe this is the stage that you get to first and you find out which of your powders or dust deflagrate, which of your powders combust, and then start your DHA based on that. Then after the DHA is completed and you're looking for mitigation steps, you're looking at possible risk levels or, 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 or how you should conduct or create your safety paradigm, that's when you might want to start looking at specific tests that will actually help characterize the combustibility. So for, for dusts, this would be stage four. For dusts in clouds, for example, that's where the KST Pmax would come in. This is where the MEC characterization or determination, the MIE, the, the minimum ignition temperature of a dust cloud, limiting oxygen concentration. I think we've, we've talked about that a little bit more in, in other episodes. But then on the flip side, I mean, these standards that talk about combustible dust hazards not only talk about the dust cloud issue, but they also talk about dust fire potential. And this is where stage 4B um, also comes in uh, from, from the book where we look at the actual burning rate, not just the screening test, but how long material takes to burn. What's the ignition temperature of a layer of this material, which might end up on top of a hot oven or a hot, a hot boiler or a hot motor or a hot electrical box? What's the auto, uh, auto ignition's temperature of the bulk material? There's very different types of test protocols that can follow along with that. And one of the things that we seldom look at, which is also key, is that if you have this material that's heated, the actual powder may not actually ignite or, or burn, but is there a possibility that it's giving off combustible gases or vapor? Maybe the, uh, there's light volatiles, solvents that are being given off from the powder, uh, maybe it's decomposing and you're getting some, uh, you know, aromatics being given off or or still in other cases where you have limited oxygen inside of an enclosure, are you giving off a lot of carbon monoxide and are you actually seeing carbon monoxide burning? So those are the the, the four stages that uh, that are pretty much crucial to identifying the hazards and characterizing the hazards of, of dust explosions and combustible dusts. Yeah, I really like that breakdown when I when I read through that flowchart in the book and when I read those sections, um, well, actually, I think for a presentation I gave, I, I kind of reproduced this flowchart. So I'll grab a screenshot of that and include it in the show notes 
for the listener. I'll just kind of review it here. So stage one is material identification. So that's like, what do we have? Some cases you know what that is. If it's polyethylene that was shipped to you, in other cases, maybe you don't know what actually is in the, maybe it's a bunch of different materials. For example, if you're a recycling manufacturing or a recycling company where you're getting circuit boards or, or electronics recycling or even garbage recycling, sometimes you have pulverized material that you don't really know what it is. Right. And then stage two is sample identification and characterization. Stage three is really about screening. Does it, does it burn? Is it a fire hazard and does it deflagrate? Is it a flash fire and explosion hazard? This is a really a, you know, a, an important first step if you're going to do a DHA because if it doesn't, then you, know, you don't have a hazard necessarily in terms of, of you know, fire, flash fire, and explosion. You may not need to go down the road of doing the rest of the testing. And then stage four is, okay, we do have a material that can burn, flame, have a flash fire, and explosion. You know, what parameters do we need then to design safety systems? That's all kind of in the stage four. Does that sound like a fair, fair characterization? Oh, ab- absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to stress is that these, these two legs from stage three down to stage four are independent. There are certain times where you might have the cloud that's, that's deflagrable, but the pile of material may not show a burning behavior at all. As a pile, the material may not readily participate in any combustion event or propagate combustion, but the dust definitely does create a deflagration. And so you might want to then tailor your mitigation steps, maybe focus it more on the deflagration aspect of it. The fire aspect of it might be just covered under the sprinkler systems that that you have at your facility. But the reverse is true too, where you might have things that burn as a pile, maybe smolder, et cetera, but may not deflagrate at all. So in which case now you have deflagration hazards that you can then write off and say that those aren't going to be of concern to me anymore in my in my hazards analysis, but I can now, I really should be concentrating on potential fire issues of, of bulk material or layered material. Yeah, so we, we've covered um, the deflagration hazards, uh, flash fires and explosions for testing quite a bit on the podcast before. Um, certainly your, your last episode, episode 50, we talked about it quite a bit in the application of pharmaceutical industries or any industry that's having kind of a high value product. How do you do testing there? We talked about in episode 21 with Martin Cloutier, understanding the combustible dust testing process. We talked about it quite a bit on the podcast, but the, the one we haven't dived into very much is this kind of lag where we're looking at combustibility testing. So non-flaming combustion, smoldering, and flaming combustion. We see it in the instant reporting um, actually actually a lot. So you'll get a case you know, where a, a ship arrives at, at port with carbon or coal or wood pellets and it's, it's on fire um, because you have this kind of hot storage system where it heats up and self-heats over time or spray dryers where it starts to self-ignite or just, just fire hazards in general. So, but it's not talked about very much. So let's, let's jump into that. What, on the combustibility side, what applications are we typically using this type of testing for? Is it something you do in every facility you go into or, or just kind of walk us down that, that path a bit? Sure. I, I think it, it, it pertains to every industry that we're working with. If you're, if you're shipping your material, if you're storing your material, it's very important. If you have, let's say, like you, you named it right there, we had, let's say, silos or, or, or spray dryers. Spray dryers are wonderful because you have the material. It's a hot environment at the top. You have, I, I think, I, I always get this confused. You either have stalactites or stalagmites. I mean, like the, you have condensed material that sort of creates drippings from the top and they, they sort of form at the top of the spray dryer. Uh, especially if you don't do a PM on them very frequently, if you have a continuous operation, you're not you're running the same batch over and over again. 
milk, milk producers have this a lot, powdered milk producers. And what happens there is you actually have these stalactites that sort of self-heat because they're, they're in a hot environment. They create structure. They smolder. And then when they smolder and they break off because they lose structural integrity, they'll then drop down with force into the pile of material at the bottom of the spray dryer and then create a, a deflagration at that point. So you have a smoldering event, a fire event that then propagates into or initiates a deflagration event just due to the nature of, of a physical uh, interaction. So you have those types of situations, any type of heating, like if you have a rotary dryer or some sort of drum dryer, there's always potential of, of material self-heating on you. Again, I've, I've, I've had that incident that you're talking about where you might have something shipping across from you know one part of the country to the other or one part of the globe to the other, and it's crossing the equator or it's in a hot container. Um, you could have material that, that self-accelerate to decomposition and you have a resulting in a fire that would then create a hazard for the rest of the, of the transport. I once had a situation where I had modeled this for a company where uh, I predicted that you know, their, their material in super sacks would cook off at 80 degrees Celsius. And uh, lo and behold, it did. But you know, the, the, the data and the analysis didn't get translated to other parts of the company that was doing the shipping. And as a result, uh, the container was being shipped from, from Asia to Europe crossing the equator and it actually caught fire and and the shipping company had to actually dump it off the side of the boat and as a result the company that was who this product belonged to was now being banned by that shipping company about not being allowed to transport using their services anymore because they had this fire scenario so it could have large repercussions yeah we have a, a video maybe i'll try to pull out of a i think it was 12 contain shipping containers arriving at port in in China, I want to say in um, Hong Kong port, but it may, it may have been Shanghai, but they were all on fire and the, the firefighters didn't really know what to do. So they just got cranes and started dumping the, the coal, the coal out of the shipping containers and, and massive, massive flash fires erupting. I think they took seven days and they, that's how they got rid of the, they didn't put it out in the container. They just attached a crane to lift it up from one end. And, and we have some videos of these, gigantic fireballs coming off these shipping containers of, of carbon dust. So, okay, let's, in order to try to break this out a little bit, let's, I'm going to mention the different combustion tests and then maybe we'll kind of walk through and, and talk about the applications for each. So the, the ones I have listed here are the burn rate test, the layer ignition temperature, auto ignition screening, hot storage screening, exothermic decomposition screening, um, and smoldering gas evolution. So I'm not sure We'll, we'll try to get through all those. We may, we may end up making this a two-part episode. We'll see. Um, but just starting at the, the beginning, the burn rate test, what, what kind of application is that used for? It, it initially started off as a transportation, UN DOT transportation test. Other standards have adopted too. There's an EPA method 1030 that, that uses the same methodology. And typically what you're looking at is you're looking at a trough of material, usually about a, a foot long, that you ignite at one end and then you monitor and you calculate the amount of time it takes to, you know, trans, uh, to, to, to burn from one end of the pile to the other or from one end of the trough to the other end of the trough. And depending on the speed at which it burns, the, the UN uh, guidebook on the transportation of dangerous goods would put it into uh, a classification, shipping classification. Is it class four, division 4.1, Packing group, you know, 
two, packing group three, or is it, or if it burns but doesn't burn fast enough, is it not part of you know division four point one at all at all? So you can also use that same methodology to assess your own safety parameters at your company. If it's if it's a rapidly burning material, what kind of response time do I need to tackle? a fire. I mean, is the fire going to spread very slowly or is the fire going to spread very quickly? So that would be a a, a first test that, that has multiple purposes. And of course, you know, it's been copied by many different agencies. I think OSHA has a similar type of test, which they've taken the UN burning rate test and uh, created into their, adopted it into their own standard. And they've added their own language on how to perform the test, which is pretty much exactly the same as the UN guidebook. And then the EPA has the same methodology, and of course they have adopted it, and and the verbiage is pretty much exactly the same. But it's it's also something similar, and they have their own special rules and regulations as to what they're looking for. But the idea is that well, I have something that will catch fire and will burn. There are some materials that will catch fire and will only burn so long as the existing flame is is being impinged on the trough. Um, and as soon as that flame is removed, it'll self-extinguish. That'll give you an idea that the material itself might add BTUs or energy to an existing fire, but won't necessarily propagate the fire beyond the immediate combustion zone. So that also you can use when you're looking at your hazards analysis to say, okay, what's the realistic severity that I'm going to be looking at? If it only is going to add BTUs to an existing fire, but not really propagate, maybe I can contain it very easily. If it's something that will propagate, then well, maybe I can't contain it, and I have to look at other mechanisms for for containment of fire spread, like excessive sprinkler or extra sprinkling, or, or maybe I need fire barriers or firewalls that I can put up at the facility to prevent fire spread. So that would be the first test you should look at, just to see whether does the material burn. If it does, does it propagate? Okay, and, and yeah, it's we had the document there at one point. The classifications originally from a UN document on transportation of dangerous goods. And then, yeah, they do a class and category, I think, system, or there's there's a number of different classifications depending on how fast it burns. Right. So, so you fall into class four typically handles combustible powders or solids. And then class four, division 4.1, talks about uh, combustible combustible solids. Is it a, does it classify as a combustible solid? It could still burn, but not be classified as a combustible solid if it doesn't burn fast enough. Okay. So that's the that's a synopsis, I guess, on the burn rate test. The actual book itself has a more in-depth discussion, has the, the references to all those UN standards and the other standards as well there. So kind of moving on to, to layer ignition temperature, um, I think I know this one, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, is, this is one that's uh, more well used in the dust explosion protection world, and maybe you can give us a breakdown on why why you might care about the layer ignition temperature. Well, I mean, there's, there's two. There's there's you know you actually have the ability that this is sort of like the um, equivalent in the in the cloud version. You have the minimum auto ignition temperature of a dust cloud. This is the same thing, but on for a solid layer, you're actually looking at the the minimum temperature that will ignite a layer of material. And this is done per ASTM E2021. Uh, however, there's other you know, VDI methods and there's ISO methods and EN methods that are equivalent. And it really simulates the fact that, let's say, if I have a powder deposited on a hot surface, that could be on a motor cover. It could be on, the, on an engine cover. It could be on the cover of a dryer. Or let's say if you have uh, an exhaust system that's exhausting away 
a hot air, if, if I have this fugitive dust that accumulates on that hot air, could that be an issue? If you have overhead lighting and you're still using, you know, mercury vapor lights as opposed to LED lights, you know, those mercury vapor lights get very hot. If I have the powder deposited on these mercury vapor light shields, you know, can it get hot enough that those, that the layer of material will ignite? And that fire could then, you know, create a, a fire hazard. Uh, you'll have a fire source at your facility, but then that fire could just be the, the tip of the iceberg creating a deflagration event as well. So that could be the initiating factor. A couple of things with this method, it is usually used in conjunction with the MIT of a dust cloud to establish T codes for electrical equipment. So both this LIT, you know, layer ignition temperature, as well as the MIT or minimum ignition temperature of a dust cloud, both of these, you use the lower of the two values to pick your T code that you're going to be using for electrical motors and, and, and electrical boxes. So these values have a role in that as well, as well as just looking at general surfaces that, you know, if you have a, have a hot pipe that's going to running through your facility and it's, has a surface temperature of 300 degrees, but you know you have an, a layer ignition temperature of 250, then you're going to have to take some precautions because the layer does get hot enough to, to go to ignition. Yeah, this will be part of one of your, you know, your ignition control strategy is making sure that surfaces and bearings and such don't get hot enough or operating temperatures don't get hot enough to ignite layers or ignite you know, a, dust, a dust cloud either. And that's where your LIT and your minimum auto ignition temperature, MAIT, I guess, uh, kind of come into play. Correct, correct. And the other, the, the, the one thing to remember with this is that um, the ASTM method uses the default value of 12 millimeters uh, thereabouts for the, uh, the LIT test. And the European method uses five millimeters. And, and, the, and the way this works in terms of the physics of, of chemistry of self-heating is that the thicker the layer, the lower the LIT value. So what happens is that if you have data from the European method or data from a European source, they might be looking at a, an LIT using a 5-millimeter layer, and they might get a value of 350 degrees Celsius. But then if you uh, are looking using compar- comparing it to data that's generated by the ASTM method, which uses a 12-and-a-half-millimeter 12, 12 layer, then you might be looking at a value of 300 degrees Celsius. So they may not necessarily translate. So you have to compare the layer thicknesses to, to look at this value. There is no hard and fast rule. The ASTM method does allow you to use thinner layers. However, you have to sort of mention it in the report that you're using a thinner layer. So you could default to a five millimeter layer if you want to. That being said, you know, you just, you, you never want to see a half inch thick layer of deposited dust on surfaces. So maybe the, the 12 and a half millimeter layer thickness is on the little conservative side, but five millimeter layer deposits, if you, if you do a, an audit of a building, if you, if you are going to have dust deposits, five millimeter layer de- deposits are not unheard of when you're doing a walk down of a facility. Uh, you, you, you generally do see them if you have a facility that has poor, poor housekeeping. Okay. So that's the, that's the burn rate test and the layer ignition temperature. On the next two, I have our auto ignition screening and then hot storage screening. I think these are, are separate, right? They're separate, but they're similar. Okay. Well, walk us, walk us through those then. Sure. Uh, they're pretty much similar in form, uh, both the, the hot, uh, hot storage screening and then the, and the other one there the, um, that uses the GRU apparatus. It is pretty much the material is packed into a, a shape inside of a wire mesh basket. And 
they're typically placed in a hot air stream or a hot oven, and you're pretty much watching to see whether the materials accelerate in temperature as a function of the oven temperature. So either you can ramp the oven and then see whether the material exhibits an exotherm. Does it does it accelerate and, and heat up and give off heat or, or does it give off a flame? Um, the, the one method uh, using the Gruer oven, the, the auto ignition screening test, uses a smaller volume, whereas the hot storage screening test uses a much larger volume in a larger oven. Yeah. And one method is more, again, of a screening work. Uh, the other method, uh, you're looking at larger samples. I, I would recommend using the, the smaller method first to see how violent the exotherm is going to be. If it's too violent, you don't want to scale up to the larger test because that could end up having a very, you know, energetic flame in your oven, which could compromise your facility, or maybe you'd have explosive effects. It might actually, you know, create a deflagration, just not of a cloud, but of the the pile of material of its own. So you want to be careful with that. You you only learn that lesson once. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The other thing is that these tests can be either done isothermally, so you just keep the oven at a given temperature, either the small screening work or the larger oven, and you monitor whether it will it will accelerate. Maybe you give it a week's time. Maybe you give it 24 hours time. Will it accelerate, for example, at 200 degrees? Will it accelerate at 250 degrees? The other method is a dynamic method where you actually ramp the temperature of the oven, starting off at room temperature, going up to a higher value of you know, 400, 500 degrees Celsius. Yeah. When you're saying accelerating, you're looking at the temperature over time. So say, say it starts off the materials at room temperature and you put it in a 600 Kelvin oven. So you watch it over time, you know, raise to 600 Kelvin, but does it, you know, does it accelerate over time? Does it overshoot that? Does it start burning? Does, it, does, does the material match the same temperature ramp rate as, as the oven itself? Or does it heat up faster than the oven itself? And that way you're noticing that there's some other energy input into the sample beyond just the temperature that the oven is providing. It possibly is an indication that you actually have something going on within the material itself, some sort of either um, exothermic decomposition or some exothermic oxidation type reaction occurring. That makes sense. And then, so you could use this, right? Like if you know that a a given sample is going to um, exothermically burn at a given temperature over, you know, a 24 hour period, then maybe you can only hold that material for 10 hours or it give you some indication of how long that material can sustain increased temperatures before it would start to to self-react and, and uh, not even to self-react, but just react. Right. So in other words, let's say if you know that uh, you have a, um, a one-week transport from, from, from Maine to Los Angeles, for example, of, of your material, what temperature should I voice? If I'm going to have it at for, a, for a one week, then maybe I don't want to be at 80 degrees Celsius, which is the 10-hour the window for it to accelerate. But I need to drop it to 60 degrees, which will let me transport uh, from Maine to to Los Angeles without an incident, or, or more likely that I do I need to avoid temperatures greater than sixty degrees, also will make it from location A to location B. We we have seen cases where you have trucks going down the highway with flaming, flaming dust um, coming out the back and and stuff. <laughs> so it does it does happen. Uh, but again, these are screening tests. These are at the, still at the screening stage, which you want analysis, which is not included in the chapter, but is it, much more. Um, uh, elaborate set of methodologies where you actually do some calorimetry where you can measure the heating rates so that you can establish 
reaction kinetics. You know, what's the pre-exponential factor? What's the ex- uh, exponent? And then from that, you can use certain models to predict what the self-accelerating decomposition temperature is, as well as, you know, critical temperature, adiabatic uh, time to reaction, values and parameters uh, for, the, for, for further modeling so that you can get an idea. But that's typically a stage two beyond this initial step. Uh, it's, a, it's a more elaborate and involved methodology. Okay, so we covered a lot of the, the kind of burning aspects, combustion testing. Let's close out on the smoldering gas evolution. Sure. Where would you use that? Um, kind of what applications? That's in a very similar application where, for example, you might have a silo or you might have the, the, the spray dryer that we're talking about. The idea is that, let's say if I have a heated environment, maybe the material is, is slightly oxygen starved. But uh, it's, in a, it's in an enclosed maybe 55-gallon drum and it's being heated either by a fire or just in a hot storage environment, for example, in the back of a truck. Does, does it heat like very much like the isothermal screening test? Does it heat up by itself? Does it uh, generate temperatures greater than the oven in which the test tubes are, are, are situated in? But also because we're testing in test tubes and they're sort of enclosed, we can sample the off-gases. And by sampling the off-gases, are we looking at things that can ignite? So in other words, under a heated environment, will it actually give off, for example, aromatics or maybe lightweight hydrocarbons? Or will it give off carbon monoxide because it's smoldering? And we tend to, when we're talking about powders and dusts, we tend to ignore the aspect that in that smoldering environment, in that smoldering step, those vapors that are given off could pool inside of a piece of equipment, couldn't pool inside of structure. And given the fact that they're carbon monoxide or light hydrocarbons, they might have different combustibility parameters than the dust that you dealt with originally. For example, we know that vapors and gases typically have MIEs that are measured in tenths of millijoules as opposed to dust, which are measured in millijoules. So maybe you had taken precautions at your facility to avoid against you know, millijoule level ignition energies, but did you protect against fractions of millijoules? And maybe you haven't. And now you have to be more worried about carbon monoxide or light hydrocarbons uh, being an ignition or being a fuel for a deflagration. Yeah, I'd say the most common place that I've seen this, and I'm sure there's other other captured this, but from the incident reporting in dryers, we see this quite a bit. So like a wood pellet dryer or even a, a flocking um, textile kind of dryer or yeah or silos or silos you know, just as regular size let's say after the wood pellet let's say after the dryer something gets transported to a silo you have a burning ember that might have been transported along either pneumatically or chain conveyed or the puck conveyor or some sort of drag conveyor it gets dumped into the silo that ember embeds itself in the silo but because it's now surrounded with all this material oxygen can't necessarily percolate through the material to keep a a very rapid or energetic combustion, but you have a prolonged smoldering combustion occurring, you get a lot of carbon monoxide that's generated. And if the silo isn't properly ventilated, the carbon monoxide can pool. And then operation, uh, human, human, human manipulation could result in a carbon monoxide uh, explosion that, that could occur in the headspace. Yeah, we've, we've struggled with this actually on reporting. Sometimes we'll we'll capture an explosion and, and we'll even report it as, as such. And then you know, somebody might, might say, well, that's, that's a gas explosion. And it's, it's true, but we try to report anything that's important to consider if you're handling powders. So this is a case where 
the product that you're working with is a, is a solid material. It makes a powder. The powder is actually what led to the gas explosion. So even if it was just purely a gas explosion, which in a lot of cases is probably going to be a hybrid anyway, uh, we, we tend to report those under the, the combustible dust instant reporting because it's important to know about if you're, you're handling these materials. Like you said, if you're, if you're running at MIEs that are safe for the combustible dust you tested, but then you have this off-gas evolution, you can be an order or even uh, even a couple orders lower ignition energies, and you may not be in a you know a safe operating regime anymore. No, absolutely, absolutely. For example, maybe maybe you have designed your facility to be a class two division one or class two division two electrically rated enclosure facility, but given the fact that you're giving off gases, maybe you needed to have electrical components that were class one division one, for example, and you didn't have that. Yeah. So this, yeah, this has been really, really insightful. Um, going through this kind of other branch of combustible dust testing. So where the the combustion hazards and the the fire hazards, both smoldering combustion, kind of non-flaming, and then even uh, you know flaming combustion and fire hazards. I think the I think we'll close out from here. But the kind of last thing I want to leave off on is how is all of this integrated into the? Well, let's just stay in North America, I guess, and the NFPA. Standards are there requirements to do this sort of combustibility testing? There are. I mean, ultimately, the 652 does mention the fact of fire hazards in addition to deflagration hazards. So that you know, being 652 now being incorporated into the the, the fire code means that not only are you required to prevent deflagrations at your facility and, and you know protect your dust collector and pre- protect your bucket elevator and so forth, but you're now also, because it's part of 652, also protect your facility against these fire hazards that are very, very common for, for combustible dust as well. Okay, well, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you coming back on for your third episode of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I'm not sure if we've had anyone do four yet. <laughs> uh, so you you may you may be you're on your road to being the first. Oh, perfect, perfect, fantastic. You'll you'll get a gold star or something. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at that. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for that opportunity. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> no, I re- I really appreciate you taking your time as always to to go through this stuff. It's it's really interesting to see this other side of the coin of this fire and safety hazard, an area that's I I, I would say gets a little less attention than the explosion safety side, which. It's unfortunate because the explosion safety side, in, in my opinion, doesn't get enough attention either. But I would say that when we when we find you know these these large loss in terms of dollars, um, so you know ten million, twenty million dollar losses, they generally have a very large fire component because that's how you're burning away a lot of the, a lot of the facilities. So it is important to uh, to to recognize and understand the the combustion characteristics of your materials. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, well, we'll close out from there. And yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. I look forward to the chance to, to get you on for a, a quad a quad beat on, <laughs> on the podcast. Sounds great. All right, thanks, thanks Chris. Thanks, Ashok. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Shok Dasadar. We've been talking about dust explosion and combustion test methods. Um, again, this is part of a, a book, Method and Chemical Process Safety, Volume 3, on dust explosions. Um, that was edited by Dr. Paul Amia and Dr. Faisal Khan. We're just going through with some of the the book author the book chapters authors um, again. This is a multi-author book. Each author really brought their own specific area of expertise to contributing. Um, so in this specific episode, we've been talking about combustible dust testing. We talked a bit about the deflagration side, which we covered before, but we really went in deep on the the combustion testing. So on screening for um, burning hazards, screening for fire, screening for storage. 
and exosomic heating. Uh, we went through a bunch of different tests, burn rate tests, uh, looking at how fast a, you know, a fire or flame will propagate through the material, layer ignition temperature, so how, how hot a, a surface or a bearing would need to be to, to cause a fire in that material. And we looked at some of this, the kind of bulk storage uh, burning of, of dust. So how long would they take to start um, having combustions or having exothermic reaction at hot, hot conditions and smoldering gas evolution. So is there gas being given off that then can be a, a fuel for a, a dust explosion um, or a gas explosion after that? So we cover a lot of really good topics. Again, the, the book itself, you can find in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 54. We'll put a link there. We also have it in our resources page at dustsafetyscience.com slash resources, along with a bunch of other textbooks and you know resources that we find in the field. And other than that, I hope you have a, a safe week ahead. I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries around the world handling combustible dust. And I really look forward to continue to bring you, you know, different experts to talk about topics that are important in this area from around the globe. <music>